Hello, welcome to the second installment of our podcast, Star Trek Age of Discovery. I'm Adele Austin Anderson. And I'm Gary Anderson. And we're a married couple who are longtime fans of the Star Trek franchise. In this installment, we will discuss the first two episodes of the series. Episode one is called The Vulcan Hello, and episode two is entitled Battle at the Binary Stars. Now, the purpose of our podcast is not to provide a recap of the plot, but instead provide an opportunity for us to comment on the major characteristics and themes of the show. Right. So there will be some spoilers for both episodes during this podcast. So if you haven't seen both of them, we encourage you to stop it after we get done talking with about the vocal and hello, and then return after you've seen Battle at the Binary Stars. Um, also, um, we recommend that you hold judgment for the series after you've seen both episodes. This, the, these two together are actually the prologue to the series, and you'll have a better understanding, or at least an understanding to begin with for the show after you've seen both of them and not just one. So to be so to begin our commentary, I think you know, I think we could both agree, Gary, that we highly recommend the series. That um we actually watched it twice and we thought that uh watching it the second time a day later actually deepened our appreciation for the series. Yeah, I really enjoyed this series. I mean when you look at it in comparison to some of the other uh, series, this is a hell of a lot better than Encounter at Farpoint. Or it's on par with um, Emissary, which is the beginning of Deep Space Nine, and it's much better than the two-part series ep- opening for Voyager. So, I'm, I'm there. There are things that I think I have some issues with, but for the most part, I think it's a stronger opening pilot than the others. Um, Just so you also know, um, it did really well in the ratings. On CBS by itself, it did 9.6 million viewers, and that's really good. When you think about the average Game of Thrones episode or Walking Dead episode, roughly gets about 10 to 11 million people. That's not counting the the people who viewed it on on the streaming channel, uh, CBS All Access, which they actually said, although they didn't release any numbers, they said that that was the, the single day that they've had the highest number of subscriptions. Um, it made a record for them, in fact. It, it beat the record that they had set back in February on the day of the Grammys, when that was the, the, the highest number of, of subscriptions they had gotten in a single day. And um, so... With all that being said, we definitely think the show is worthy of that interest. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. No doubt about it. So Gary's already said that, you know, the, these first two episodes really act as a prologue to the series. Uh, you may have heard by now that you don't even see the Starship Discovery in these two episodes. You you actually have to wait till the trailer for episode three before you even get a glimpse of the of Starship Discovery. Uh, but um, we do feel that there um, that that it was a good um, idea for them to start the show off this way, and we're gonna get into that um, in a in in a few moments. But 
that term discovery actually acts, um, you should think about it in a literal sense and also in a metaphorical sense. Again, discovery relates to the starship, but it also relates to, you know, the personal discovery that the lead character, that is First Officer Michael Burnham, is her discovery of herself, who right. she is, right. you know, how she fits in. Right. In fact, because of her very diverse and odd background of being a human that was then raised in Vulcan culture and then reintroduced seven years ago back into human culture by, by joining the Federation, She's on a, a quest for discovery about who and what she is. And part, and that's actually part of the dialogue in the show, as well as part of the conflict in these two parts. You know, her examination of herself and her motivations. So um, we're going to go right into talking about episode one. Again, it's called The Vulcan Hello. And the... And... Uh, we want to first talk about what really stood out to us. And, and I would say for both Gary and myself, it was the production values. I mean, that's really what hit you. Uh, the cinematography, uh, it was, was just lush. Uh, the choice for the camera angles, the shots, the beauty of the lighting, the richness uh, and detail of the costumes and the set and the props. I mean, it really, you could just spend a whole podcast just talking on that alone. Right, right, right. I think that the, the production values are definitely high. Um, the quality, you could see how it, they benefited from building the set for the Shinzu, the ship that they are originally on, uh, as a multi-tiered structure. Because you could see how camera angles were, were established and created in a way that you wouldn't have gotten on a conventional TV show. This was a TV show shot on a movie set style. You know, it was very high quality. Uh, and I thought that, that, that it met that with the caliber of the talent that was being displayed. The, the, act, the cast is a really strong cast, too. So, and we know that there will be some people who are going to take issue with some of the technology. Uh, for instance, they have, uh, they use holograms, they beam holograms onto another ship, or it could be another space um, as a way of communication. And at one point, they even have this holographic image is, uh, sits down. And, you know, neither Gary or I could understand why, you know, uh, a hologram that is just made up of light would have the need to sit down. Uh, but uh, we also saw that they were willing to resort to older technology when they had to if their current technology didn't do the job. Well, that was an interesting um, wrinkle when you had when you had them uh, their sensors not being able to identify a device that was that they could see clearly in a distortion field. That was actually the reason why they were wondering what the hell was going on. Um, it allowed them the opportunity to go and look through a conventional telescope that was able to be, or you know, put into position so that they could actually see what this device looked like. They couldn't tell what the energy was or anything like that, but they could just use their naked eye with the t with the ability of this telescope to really see it. I thought that was strong. So whether or not you agree with 
the the technology uh, the upgrading technology that they show in the show we did uh, feel like it was a logic it was logical um, expectation based on how techn technology probably would have progressed since um, the Star Trek Enterprise series yeah okay yeah so I the next thing I think we want to talk about topic is the depiction of the Klingons which is really interesting because. Uh, they automatically show us from the very moment the, the the episode opens, we are exposed to the concept of the circumstances from the Vulcan. I mean, from the Klingon perspective, and we're 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 introduced to a character we're going to eventually find out is named Takuvma. He is um, a prophet for a for a reunification of. Klingon, the Klingon culture, getting trying to get the twenty four desperate warring houses to come together. He's going to make an effort to try to st stand as a messiah, calling for this reunification um, in the spirit of Kalis, and talking about this as a prophet, this kind of holy event that's going to come and allow them to unify all the the twenty four houses of of the high council together. Yeah, you can see that uh, for the most part, what motivates them is this fear, this fear uh, that if they have relations with the Federation, that it will lead to a dilution of their race, that, uh, that you know, it's, it's the whole adage, um, you have to conquer or be conquered. And so to keep the Klingon uh, race pure, uh, they had to resist uh, any any treaties with um, with these other powers, and so that they will um, not interbreed and again uh, yeah. be less pure. Yeah, their their mantra, the one that that Takuvma causes them to remember and actually calls on them to recite, is "Remain Klingon," which I think is a very powerful one, considering they present themselves as as a, a species that's afraid of assimilation, afraid of what assimilation will cause in the um, breakdown of their cultural identity. Yeah, and Takuvma, he um, uses Kalis as, um, really as a lightning rod uh, to, uh, to bring them together. Um, and um, remember that Kalis is this legendary warrior who, you know, centuries previous to this time, he was the first one to actually uh, unite the empire. Right, right. In fact, he is, and, he, and when he leaves, when he, like, you know, on, in this mystic way that the story is told, he leaves, he reminds them that he will return to them and that he'll return to them through light and that he will return to them to lead them to a greater power. In fact, this is part of the story that plays out later on in the series, when we um, in, in one of the one of the subsequent series in um, uh, Deep Space Nine. No, no, no. In um, in Inter uh, Next Generation, when they when they create a clone of of Kalos. Now, both Gary and I were Christians, and so we see a lot of analogies to the Christian faith, but there certainly are 
analogies to a lot of different religions, you know, and we thought this was very interesting that Takuma really used uh, Kalis, again, as a reason why people should bring together. But, you know, initially, um, the other houses aren't convinced. Right. In fact, they're, they're comfortable with the warring uh, capacity because it gives them, it gives some of them uh, the ability to have power over the others. And they are, they, there is some concern specifically with a couple of, of characters that we, I think, going to be Klingons we're going to be dealing with later on in the season that um, resented Takuvma putting himself in, an, in the authority position of being the leader of this crusade to reunite Kling, the Klingon Empire. Right, so one of the other, what we thought was a really interesting uh, component of what was going on, or I should say dynamic, that was going on, is that um, you find out in this first episode that um, the person that they called their torchbearer, who we think is analogous to Takuma's first officer, this person is killed, and they need to replace him uh, with somebody else. Um, At first, uh, Takuma asks for the slain warrior's brother to take his place. And he refuses because he doesn't quite believe yeah. yet. He's not quite convinced that um, that Takuma is the prophet and that this is the time uh, that all these houses should be brought together. And so it is uh, to us it was really interesting about who steps up to take uh, the torchbearer's place. Yeah, it's, a, it's an albino Klingon. Who, which is not this is not the first time we've seen an albino Klingon in the stories. There was one in an episode of, of Deep Space Nine called Blood Oath that had been um, uh, also defined. He the, the concept behind the albinos is that they're impure, they're weaker, they have they they're they're susceptible to certain diseases. They're aberration. They're, ab- they're an aberration, and so they are considered unpure by Klingons. So what you end up with, oddly enough, is that it's the albino who presents himself as the one who is the most faithful. He puts his hand in the flame and he keeps there, it there until actually Takuvma comes and re- removes it. He shows he has the faith. He may not have it by his lineage, by being a member of a house. In fact, he's called Vok. He says, I am Vok, son of Nun. And because it's important for you to name who you are the child of, and he doesn't have a, a house, and in fact, he that's one thing he has in common with Takuvma, is that he's not of a grand house any longer. Although we don't learn a great deal, we find out that his his house was taken, his father's lost their house. In fact, the ship that they're on is the only remnant that he has of his father's ability, uh, strength and power and prominence in the culture. And so, you know, we're not going to insult your intelligence by, you know, going to this into detail, but there are obvious parallels 
uh, uh, to our world in regards to themes of race, class, and culture. Right. Uh, and I'm sure, you know, if you've seen the episodes, you know, they're quite apparent to you. So we want to go on to another topic, and that is how impressed we were with the writing in this regard. Um, we want to particularly go to a scene where you have Captain Giorgio, and she is the captain of the Shinshu, and, uh, first, and her first officer, Michael Burnham, uh, who um, in this scene they apprise um, a Federation admiral who is called um, Brett Anderson. Uh, they apprise him of a potentially volatile situation in regards to this Klingon intrusion into Federation space. Yeah. Um, and in this scene, Anderson cites Federation protocol in such matters uh, that requires you to take a diplomatic approach uh, to initial contact. Yeah, the whole, the whole situation is kind of set up by the fact that at the very beginning of the episode, the Shinzu is sent out to the farthest reaches of Federation space to check on this deep space probe to find out that it's been damaged. They, this, they do an investigation of it. They find out that it has actually uh, been... Um, maliciously attacked, and they f and when they f go and s when they when uh, Burnham goes and looks out and tries to find the artifact that they've identified, that's when she meets this Klingon warrior. That's when they have a battle with well, well uh, a hand hand fight with his Bethleth, and she uses her thrusters on her suit to push herself into him, which shoves the Bethleth in and it impales him, and that's how. This torchbearer for Takuma is killed, and that incites this whole conflict. Okay, so when they have this conversation between Giorgio Burnham and Admiral Anderson on how to deal with this, you know, Michael, you know, is vehement in in disagreeing with Admiral uh, on on his assessment of the nature of the Klingons, and when she does that, he chastises her, and he says to her, you know, something like, you know, considering your background, he's obviously. You Re know, referencing the fact that she's a black woman. Right. He says, "Well, you should know better," <laughs> and she retorts, which is probably the best line in the two episodes, and that is, she says. It would be unwise to confuse race and culture. Right, right, right. Because actually what it allows her to do is call him out on the fact that he attempts to try to make her feel small for this act that she's done. It's, it's the, the assumption that he understands why she was motivated, thinking of it basically from his point of view, when in actuality she's aware of the fact that there are ethnic and racial differences. But that's not the issue here. There are cultural differences between humans and Klingons that have to be taken into consideration in regards to how do we deal with these people. And so what this illustrates is an arrogance in human culture. You know, an arrogance that gets in the way of us deciding what's the best course of action. I mean, we've seen this thing played out um, in all of the Star Trek series, you know, and probably most prominently or what probably comes to mind is in Next Generation when Picard gets in, involved with the Borg. Right. You know, it's because of human arrogance, right. you know, right. uh, that, right. you know, that we can solve all problems. In fact, that's, that's, that is the very lesson that Q wants to teach him 
is when they are first confronted with the Borg. Is that that you with this beautiful idyllic idea of 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 discoverers and explorers won't be able to handle every situation you discover out here. And the Borg are the perfect example of that. And I think that's the same. It's a similar context here in that we are bringing our attitude of a peaceful interaction with other alien races. And that is not the way Klingons respond. As we've seen beforehand, they are extremely belligerent. They, you know, so, they, so in this case, um, uh, the Admiral's wrong. One policy doesn't fit all. And one has to take a step back and uh, and decide, you know, how to really deal with each situation, um, or it could lead to catastrophe. Right, and I think that's why that's why Michael approaches contacting Sark so that she can approach, she can find out how the Vulcans dealt with their first contacts and ongoing relationships with the Klingon. And she explains. She she asked him, and he tells her, and then she brings that information back to the captain. Which explains the title of the episode, The Vulcan Hello. Right, because what she says is basically the first encounter they had with the Klingons, the Klingons attacked and killed the entire crew of the Vulcan ship that had met them. And they said that the Kling, the Vulcans learned they don't make the same mistake twice. And so following that, every time they encountered the Klingons, they immediately attacked them. They immediately attacked them. And that was her suggestion to Giorgio, that that's what they should needed to do. So the next topic we want to talk about is, um, which it actually leads us into it, and that is we felt that uh, the relationship between uh, Michael and her uh, surrogate father, Sarek, or her adopted father, uh, was quite compelling. Um, in the in this episode, we learn of the circumstances of how Michael becomes Sarek's ward, and that is we find out that as a child, Michael and her family were guests on Vulcan when it suffered a, an attack, and her parents were killed. But we learn that, and we actually learn this in the next episode, we learn that Sarek enables Michael to survive when she's near death uh, because he uh, shares his katra with her. That's a, a Vulcan mind meld where he passes a part of himself into her to keep her steady and keep her calm. So um, in these episodes, this first one in the, in the second episode, will display the advantages and disadvantages of Michael being raised on Vulcan and in that culture and becoming immersed in that culture. Uh, he initially, initially you see, uh, it, it, it seems like this, the relationship is sterile. And that is, um, it seems like he, yes, he is, a, he, it seems like Sarah considers him, her to be his, her ward, his, uh, his ward not, instead of a child. Yeah. Um, Again, we don't see any difference in that until the second episode. But yeah. in this first episode, that's what it seems like. It, it seems like Michael is something of of an obligation, a responsibility, uh, and and Michael seems to treat Sarek as yes, he is someone who um, uh, who raised me, but he's a source of 
of um, information, of recommendation, you know, of advisement, but you do not see this sort of close relationship between the two of them at first as you see with um, the Captain Giorgio right. and Michael, and which would lead us to our next topic. Yeah. Um, the the multi-layered relationship between Giorgio and Michael is one of the most appealing aspects of this show. I mean, when you think about it, you realize that this is a, a top-line, really um, high-production-value television show. And in these first two episodes, the leads are two women of color in positions of authority, who have a relationship, as I said, that has multi-layers, and it allows them actually to engage with one another in a way that I don't think you, you, we're accustomed to seeing on a regular basis. In fact, I was just telling you that the, um, the odd thing about it is that the two CBS shows that have women in positions of authority that are main characters are both two sh- are both shows on their CBS All Access channel. It's not in their bra- broadcast network. It's this one, and it's the sequel to The Good Wife. They call The Good Fight. All right, and so and so again, you know, as Gary was talking about, you had these different levels of this relationship. You have, you know, you had the relationship between the captain and the first after officer and you had the mentor and the mentee but there's also this mother-daughter right. relationship right. uh very is and you can see that it's quite that over the seven year period that they've been together it's become quite uh intimate in fact we learn that Sarek intentionally chose Giorgio to mentor Michael because right. the captain had right. endured a great trauma in right. her life. Now, we don't know what that is yet, right. but she experiences great trauma, and yet she says, I chose hope, right. and she thought she could pass that along to Michael. Right. right, because the way you have it is that basically with um, with the loss of her parents at such a young age, Michael has been dealing with that very same sense of loss as well, whether she's been cognizant of it or not. And I think that that's part of what's mo- what's going on in this situation. The unresolved issues of loss impact her judgment in how she approaches this first contact situation. Um, the fact that she actually, and we're going to spoil it here, she actually um, acts mutiny against Giorgio is in part because, as she says, I'm trying to save you. And she and it's a very personal line. It's not. I'm not. I'm trying to save the ship. Trying to save us from this. Act. I'm trying to save you, right. Giorgio. She right. makes it really clear right. that this that this woman she's come to love and care for, she wants to protect her. I'm trying to save all of us. Right. So so contrast that against you know what you find in the in the original series where Kirk talks about he's saving the ship. Right. It's she, you it's know, she. he personalizes the ship. Right. You know, again, in this case, you know, the connection here is between Michael, how she feels about the captain exactly. that she's trying exactly. to save right. uh, the, the captain. Right, right, right. Because, okay. because it's not the 400 lives that are on this ship. It's this one life that I, that, that I have a connection to, and it's the other lives here on this bridge I have a connection to. I want to save you all. 
So there's such a deep bond there that what happens uh, toward the end of the episode is that uh, the uh, is that Michael inca- incapacitates the the captain through a Vulcan uh, a nerve, nerve pinch. pinch yeah. uh, because, Not very fast one. Right. Uh, a, a nerve fin- uh, pinch because um, the captain um, uh, uh, decides that she's going to continue on with the, uh, the Federation protocol right. and uh, try to talk to the Klingons yeah. instead of shooting first right, right. and ask, you know, and, and talking later. And so Michael incapacitates her. She goes into the bridge and she uh, prepares them to uh, shoot torpedoes at the Klingon vessel and but Giorgio is revived she comes out and she stops Michael she comes out with a phaser she comes out with a phaser right and she stops Michael from carrying out this assault and confines Michael to the brig for such a mutinous for mutinous action and we want to really commend again these two um uh uh, uh, female actors because because in you know in really less than 40 minutes they're able to create you know this intimate relationship that yeah. you believe yeah. so that when Michael does this uh, treasonous act you can see the disappointment the rage um, on Giorgio's face right. so it really is you know really quite a climax. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing, the, 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 one of the best special effects that's in the first episode is the performances of both Sonequa Martin-Green and Michelle Yao. They really do a wonderful job of playing an emotional history between these two characters in an episode that, like you said, is less than 45 minutes. And... We know they haven't had the backstory that 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 we're we're watching, you know. So it's just you know it's it's just a really impressive actor performing that you have between these two people. So so this scene, this last scene, also depicts a characteristic of Michael, which will be repeated in the next episode, and that is so. This is her, you know, her fatal flaw, her quandary between whether she's making a decision based on reason or on emotion. And, you know, and clearly, at least to us, she is acting on emotion, and the results are going to provide far-reaching unintended consequences, which we're going to get to but in I a think her, I, Before we go on, though, I do think her, her reading of the situation is accurate. If she, if, if, if the Shinzu had actually shot at that Klingon cruiser, battle cruiser, and had done significant damage before all the other Klingons had shown up, it would have been a different story. Well, it also is analogous, really, to what Spock did uh, for his previous captain. He and uh, that they were both willing. You know, she knew what was going to happen, even right. though, even though, if she were right by this action, mm-hmm. it still was treasonous. It was right. still right, right, right. Uh, she still. Um, uh, uh, harmed a captain, right. and she uh, uh, disobeyed orders. Right. And so she still had to pay the consequences. You know, we saw that with Spock, yeah. uh, too, that he, in a menagerie, mm-hmm. that Spock was willing to do the same thing, that he was willing to pay the consequences 
um, of his um, of taking over the ship. Yeah, well, Spock is you know as much as he's a product of logic, Spock in the original series d- does some pretty mutinous things more than once. I mean, in mm. a muck time when he shifts the direction, the trajectory of the Enterprise to go towards Vulcan, because he's got to go towards Vulcan, because he's going through the punk fire. That also is an act, you know, of, right. that, that's going but, but, against protocol. But it's going against protocol, and also based on emotions, because based on, he, based on his, yeah, he cannot control yep, yep. himself. Yeah, no doubt about it. Okay, so now we're going to go into episode two, and basically this episode is action-packed, you know, as you have... You know, uh, Klingon ships arrive at the end of of uh, episode one, and now Federation's uh, uh, ships arrive at the beginning of episode two. Yeah, man. I mean that last that last scene in the Vulcan Hello, when you just see all of these Klingon ships warp in around. The the one two, single one federation, federation ship, ship. You small got, federation you got, ship. You got, got twenty four. You got twenty six ships all there in a row, and then you got this one federation ship. You got the Shenzhou, and it's like, come on, man! How, how the how how outgunned, out unman, how outmanned are you? And then the next thing you know, beginning in the second episode, within the first two or three minutes, that's when. The, all the Federation ships show up. Right, so... And there's still some that are, that are coming that aren't there yet. So you had this really, really fierce battle. Right. Okay, so that really is the primary action well, of well, this episode. But that's actually, but that's actually to, to Kuvma, this is the prophecy. This is the event that he's been waiting for. And talking about this grand opportunity of a grand battle... That's going to occur between the Federation and the Klingons. And that this battle is going to be the thing that's going to galvanize the desperate houses of the Klingon Empire together. They're not going to fight each other any longer. They're going to proceed towards this great victory. And they're going to be unified under this mantle of remaining Klingon. Of fighting any insurrect, anybody who wants to invade or damage them. And this moment... This moment that has been unfortunately created by uh, the Shinzu and Michael Burnham is what he's been looking for, and so this is his this is his opportunity to step up and get everything going. So at battles in the Klingons declare victory uh, that they and they've won their objective of uniting their factions against a common enemy. Takuvna chooses not to destroy any any of the remaining damaged Federation vessels. Of which vessels. there's... A, <laughs> most, of it, most of the fleet is destroyed at this point. I mean, there's this massive attack on the Admiral's ship, the, the um, Europa, and he's just... It's just destroyed. Eventually, it's, it's damaged so much that, that he sets it to self-destruct so he can kill the ship that has attacked him. And so uh, he... The reason why he um, spares the lives... Of uh, the, the 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 reason why Takuma uh, spares the lives of the remaining of the surviving uh, Federation uh, officers and uh, crewmen is not because he is feeling 
um, generous or merciful, um, it's because he says, I want you to act as a herald. You know, you're going to go back and tell people, you know, who we are and who you're dealing with. Right. Uh, you're going to tell the story. So this is definitely shock and awe. Um, so all of, and so all of the ships, uh, uh, the Federation ships and also the Klingon ships also leave the sector uh, with the exception of um, those that can't move. Like right. the Shinzu is so badly damaged, it can't move anyways. But, um, uh, and Takuma, Takuma decides to remain because he wants to pull in the, um, uh, he wants to pull in those uh, 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 Klingon of warriors who have died mm -hmm. because th he explains that those warriors, the warriors who die in battle, they're going to have an honored place. Right, in Stovacor. Right. Which we've heard of before. But he's actually using them to adorn the exterior of his battle cruiser. He's putting, he's they're in coffins surrounding the outside of his ship. So he's using the tractor beam to pull them up. So then, although the uh, as I said, uh, the starship Shinzu is heavily damaged, Michael escapes the brig, right, and, and rejoins the captain on the bridge. Right, and that's one of the most um, exciting uh, special effects scenes that they've got. Yeah, so we're gonna leave that. If you haven't seen it, to see it, and you'll want to watch it again because that was really exciting. So along with uh, science officer Saru. Uh, the captain and Michael devise a plan to disable Takuma's vessel. And uh, they decide, you know, through Michael's uh, uh, recommendation to capture the leader, Takuma, uh, uh, Takuma to serve as a hostage for negotiation. Right, right. The idea is that if he takes this victory, he can proceed to call, you know, to call, uh, call the arms of all the desperate... Klingons, and he can begin. He can play himself as a, as a, as a martyr. Specifically, if they were to destroy his ship, he would be a martyr. Something that they could all rally behind. And this way, if he is captured and taken as a hostage, he becomes a, an example of failure in Klingon eyes. So after Takuva's, uh, so it does work. Their right. plan does work to right. uh, incapacitate they, they put, the they ship. Put a, they put the a warhead onto one of the the dead bodies that they're pulling up back to the ship. The the ship, it gets to the ship, it explodes, and it cuts off the front of the battle cruiser and so, disables it. So the captain and Michael then beam aboard right. uh, Takuva's ship, and they engage in a really fierce fight uh, between Takuva and Vok. Yeah, Vok. Yeah, uh, Michael takes on Vok, the, the albino Klingon, and um, Giorgio takes on Takuvma, which, you know, it is Michelle Yao. She's, <laughs> she's actually proficient in the martial, art. martial arts, and that's actually what she's known as um, in her background. So it's, it makes sense that she would be in a battle. Yeah, and so what happens is that Michael's able to disarm Vok. Mm -hmm. uh, but she's too late to help her captain. She has to watch helplessly as Tukuma, Tukuma impales uh, Giorgio. Right, with his bat And then, responding emotionally, 
she shoots him with the phaser. She shoots him in the back with the phaser, and it's and it put it puts a hole in him. It pierces a, a hole through his body. So it's set to not to stun. It's set to kill. It's, so so there's no choice. There's right. no chance of taking him back alive. Right, I mean, she right. is out now killed so the, him. So the, so the original and mission of why they did this and why they came over there is totally destroyed. And so the other thing we want to mention is that throughout this episode, we were really impressed about how the actors were allowed to allow their gender to influence their response. In particular, Michelle Yao as Captain Giorgio chose moments where she, uh, she used her facial expressions in her body to register the full gravity of the loss of human life under her command. Yet, she is not paralyzed by it, but chooses to act to spare the lives of other crew members while searching for ways to turn the tables on Takuvma uh, and, what hap and what appeared to be this Klingon victory. So at the end of the episode, we find that there's little that we can find as hopeful. Right, right, right. I mean, Giorgio's been killed. Um, it turns out that Michael Burnham is going to be tried for mutiny. Um, Admiral, An Admiral Anderson's ship is destroyed and, and he's killed. The Federation is at a state of war. This is the beginning of a state of war with the Klingons. They're, the the fleet is severely impaired because a good portion of it was in this altercation and was da badly damaged. They took they they destroyed portions of the Klingon fleet, but they took far worse casualties on the Federation side. Um, Michael, as I said, is going to become a scapegoat uh, as well as a pariah. There's also the possibility when when you see in the trailer for episode three that somehow she's going to be revived into service through um, through the discovery. That's when we're going to see the discovery. But um, overall, I'm really impressed by what, what they showed us. And I think that it was set up. Again, I'm going to reiterate something that we said earlier. It is the prologue, I think, for the series. It is a way for us to get the backstory in a, it, for this show because... All, a lot of elements were laid down that I think are going to play out quite interestingly going forward. I mean, what amazes me is just when you think about Michael's life right. and all that she suffered, and you say to yourself, well, there's no way that this woman could get to a lower point, but in, but in fact she is, because again, she is sentenced to life imprisonment, right, 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 and right. she has lost, you know, uh, a woman who she... Uh, who gave her inspiration, right. who gave her this new life, got her in touch with her human side, right. and was essentially her mother, uh, a mother that she never had. Um, so, you know, I think in a conclusion, um, we, again, we can't wait to see the next episode. Now, we're not saying there's nothing to quibble out yeah, there about. Yeah, there were things to quibble with. I mean, we, we, said, we talked before about technology, uh, about changes that they made in technology, also that that you know would have probably been impossible if you consider what technology you had. Well, on like the the, big, the biggest, most obvious thing is at the time of this show, the Klingons don't have a cloaking device. They don't. 
they get the cloaking device from the Romulans. The Romulans are the ones who are going around hiding themselves, and then all of a sudden they pop up and they materialize so they can scare you. I mean, the Klingons don't do that. And the fact that this ship has it, not only this ship, but also another ship, separate ship, the one that attacks Admiral Anderson's sh- the ship, the Europa, that one too has a cloaking device. That's I mean, right. Those are two major plot points that right. where where technology that the Klingons are aren't supposed to have at this point is is evident in this story, which which is confusing. And then there was another point uh, in the first episode where Michael essentially she sets out a lifeline to Sarek. Uh, she she, she did it twice. Uh, yeah, where where she communicates with him and he's available instantly. And uh, and that we felt that that was a little too convenient as a plot device, uh, and for a moment, you know, it it took us out of the story. But you know, however, we felt in the end that these were minor challenges. Overall, we appreciated the high production values, the quality of the acting, the interweaving of contemporary issues into issues into the storylines, and the promise of future stories depicting how Michael will redeem herself and come to peace with her past actions. And I don't, th- but I, but I just disagree. I don't necessarily think that coming to peace. Is is what the objective is. I think the t- I'm going to take the title literally. I think that it is a it is a quest of discovery that she is going through. There are these things, and and Sarek brings it up more than once when he effort, when she first calls him, and holographically she's talking to him about the interaction of Vulcans with Klingons. He warns her about trying to save people who are already dead, he has a sense that her actions are being motivated by the sense of her loss of her parents. And I think that that, to, I think that was an accurate way of, of, of identifying it because I think she, she has the response so much of someone who doesn't, I don't want to lose you, that it is very a personal thing for her. That goes beyond all that training that she had as a, as a Vulcan, and I think that she has to come to terms with this loss that she hasn't really registered because she was raised in a culture where emotions were suppressed and not ever really addressed. Well, you know that's the beauty of this podcast. We'll we'll find out over time whether you're correct in your well, in your I'm, evaluation. I'm, well, we will we shall see, won't we? Isn't that, <laughs> isn't that the beauty of a podcast? Okay, so it seems as if you know they got the clear resources. I think for the show, and I think they've got the time. In fact, you know they did um, on on the CBS All Access. They premiered another show, which was After Trek, which is their kind of, you know, comedy ro- uh, recap interview show for, with cast members, and half the majority of the cast actually was in Toronto where they were shooting the f- season finale, starting you know the next day. So I got the impression that they're not they're not finished with the show. So well, pre- well for you, I and, and oh, oh, we know that of course CBS is committed to two seasons. Yeah, uh, they've already made that uh, commitment. Right. They've already and, and I know for you, you feel that you know that these streaming episodes are really the future of the franchise. That and and that they're moving away from you know theatrical I, I, releases. I, after after Sunday night, I was more confident that 
the 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 way that Paramount and Viacom is going to proceed with anything Star Trek is they're going to go for the t- this TV series and they are not going anywhere. There's not going to be another Chris Pine Zachary Quinto movie. I would be really surprised. I think the ratings were good. I think the subscription numbers, although they didn't tell us how many it was, I think the subscription numbers were better than what they had anticipated. And I think that the critical reaction, for the most part, is very strong on the show. So if this continues, if it continues through the rest of the season, I'm, I would find it hard to believe that they would be investing in the Calvin, the wacky verse version of the TV, <laughs> of, of those movies anymore. Okay, so with that, uh, we want to thank our listening audience for joining us. Hope you will return next week. Oh, yeah, and be sure to leave um, comments, re- your reactions on our Facebook page. That's Star Trek Age of Discovery. Um, you can find it quite easily. Um, it, also, that's where we're going to be posting all of our other information that's going that we'll get over the next couple of days. So until then... Live long and prosper.